This episode of the Organic BC Podcast was supported by the BC Climate AgriSolutions Fund. Hello, this is the Organic BC Podcast, and I'm Jordan Marr. This episode, I talked to Drew Yates of ES Crop Consult. Hello, my name is Drew Yates, and I'm a consultant based out of the Fraser Valley. I work with ES Crop Consults, which is largely an integrated pest management consulting company, but we wear lots of hats and do different things. And my background is actually in soil science, and I'm a nutrient management planner. And so I also work sort of on the the soil and nutrient side of things with my ES hat on. Getting the right amount of nitrogen to our crops at the right time can be tricky. And if we overapply it, it doesn't just hurt our bottom line. Nutrient pollution contributes to greenhouse gas emissions and pollutes our water. And so I invited Drew to join me to help us understand how to find the right balance between meeting a crop's nitrogen needs and our collective responsibility to avoid nitrogen pollution of our air and water. I think that's all I need to say. I hope you enjoy this conversation and I will talk to you in a bit. Drew Yates, thanks so much for joining me on the Organic BC podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Drew, you've joined me today to talk about uh, nitrogen cycles and effectively and responsibly managing the nitrogen that we add to our soil. And so I thought I would start by asking you why we need to be concerned as farmers about applying too much nitrogen to the soil. Mm-hmm. Um... Yeah, when when people ask me that question, I sort of have a, a two pronged response to that. So one piece is the agronomic side. So effectively getting the most out of your inputs, you know, as farms, um, these are businesses that are operating. Um, and so you want to be using all of your nitrogen inputs as effectively and efficiently as possible. So You don't want to have too little so that it's impacting your yield negatively, but you also don't want to be applying too much, um, which kind of equivocates to paying for for too much, uh, too many inputs for nitrogen. So that's one side of it, the agronomic side. The other is the environmental side. And as with um, most different nutrients, having excess levels if there's too many, they're going to be lost to the environment in some way. And nitrogen is no exception to that. And with nitrogen, largely it will be lost to the air or to different waterways. And especially waterways is one way that we want to be focusing on managing not having excess nitrogen. And environmentally, there are complications uh, related to excess nitrogen in waterways Um, But there's also some human health concerns. And so we're going to talk a bit more about this later in this conversation, I think. But uh, there's emphasis on vulnerable aquifer regions. um, And those some sort of have some of the more strict requirements environmentally. And that's because of nitrates entering water sources and there being human health risks associated with that. So, yeah, those are sort of the two two main categories. And there's obviously on the environmental side, there's some regulation for us to talk about. So I don't know if you want to get into that now. I want to get into that in just a moment. Uh, I okay. think I was going to ask you if you could, to the extent you're comfortable with it, just yep. describe briefly the basic science of how and why nitrogen leaves the soil mm. in the air or through into the water. 
So there's lots of different forms of nitrogen that exist, and the nitrogen cycle can be <laughs> very complicated and overwhelming sometimes to look at. If you Google uh, figures of the nitrogen cycle, it can be a lot of information to take in. But what I want to focus on, I guess, is um, the mineralization of different forms of nitrogen into nitrate in particular. So nitrate is a form of nitrogen that is extremely mobile within the soil, which also means that it is extremely easy to leach out of the soil and into waterways. So we really focus on nitrate often when we're talking about protecting waterways. And then in terms of nitrogen going into the, uh, the air, that largely occurs through volatilization. So where mineral forms of nitrogen like ammonium are transformed into gaseous forms of nitrogen, like ammonia gas. And there's concerns connected to the ways that nitrogen gases contribute to greenhouse gas as well. So that's worth mentioning as well, I guess. Like typically, if especially if we're talking about synthetic fertilizers, Drew, when we add synthetic fertilizers to the soil, um, the thing that makes them valuable to add to the soil for plant uptake is the thing that makes them so leaky out of our soils, isn't it? It's, <laughs> is, that, is that a fair, is that like a fair way to put it? It's like, we want them in a water soluble form to get into our plants, but that also makes it really easy for the nitrogen to leave. That's really, field. really well put Jordan, actually. Yeah. So these mineralized forms of nitrogen, which is just like a fancy soil science term for saying it's been transformed into a plant available form of nitrogen. Yeah, those tend to be the most mobile and therefore the most likely to be leached and lost from from our fields. So yeah, that's very well said. In your experience, you, you touched on this a little bit, but is are the various forms of nitrogen pollution you just highlighted, are they are they a problem in BC? Like like and, and if so, where and in what in what context are they a problem? So, like I mentioned earlier, these vulnerable aquifer regions um, tend to be the areas where it's a biggest problem for, for the loss of nitrate. And uh, so, like out in uh, Abbotsford, there's the Sumas Aquifer. There's, I know there's an aquifer in the Hulkar Valley region. Um, but this is actually... Um, if you're interested in knowing if where you're located has to do with this vulnerable aquifer re recharge area, there's a website that has a map that identifies what the province views as those particular high-risk regions. And there's different qualities that contribute to why an area might be classified uh, as vulnerable in that way. And largely it's because there's an aquifer and also above that aquifer, there's maybe a decent amount of fairly coarse textured material. And so leaching that movement of nutrients in water through the soil can happen a little bit more easily than, say, like a, a finer textured soil. Right. And I have to imagine the other two major factors uh, that make a region particularly vulnerable are just the, the amount of intensive ag taking place above those soils, as well as the amount of um, pre precipitation at certain times of year. Yes, absolutely. So the high rainfall component is another um, important piece. And even if you're not intensively managing, maybe by your view in some of those areas, um, just the, the, yeah, sort of the environmental conditions and the soil quality conditions are going to 
put that in a higher risk category. In this conversation, we're going to largely be talking about fertilizers applied to soils. But but can can you touch on the role that, that compost can play? Because I think it's easy enough for people applying compost to not assume or think that, that, that they could be you know, causing environmental pollution, because I think some of us, some of we farmers think that, that compost, that, that the forms of nitrogen and compost are a lot more stable. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just wondering if you can comment on the role that, that compost can play in environmental pollution, and d- depending on how and when and in what amounts it's added. Yeah, that's a really good point, Jordan. Yes, in lots of ways, um, I think we think about compost having really stable forms of nutrients, including nitrogen. And to some extent, that is true, you know, relative to maybe some other inputs. It takes longer for some of those nutrients to become plant available and go through that mineralization process. But uh, ultimately, they still contain nutrients that Um, will become available and can actually sort of carry over from year to year. So organic forms of nitrogen, not all of it is necessarily going to become available immediately in that first year that you've applied it. And so that's one area that I see often getting unaccounted for is the carryover from year to year of organic nitrogen that was applied perhaps in 2022, but only a portion of that becomes plant available and used by the crops. And then more of that is going to mineralize and become available the following season and so on and so on. So especially for fields that have year after year of some of these either manure or compost inputs, that that carryover is a factor. Um, And yeah, it's, it's hard to account for. So that's part of why Sometimes it's easier to just pretend that it's not happening, but that can contribute to an over application or using an overly high rate year after year because that carryover isn't being accounted for. Yes. And I think something that has been actually brought up in uh, your podcast in the past, I know, especially the one that you did with Amy Norgard, um, it was brought up that a lot of composts have a relatively low nitrogen to phosphorus ratio. So that basically means that, you know, in a given compost, there's low levels of nitrogen relative to phosphorus. And I know we're not really talking about phosphorus here, but I think that's worth mentioning um, that by trying to meet the nitrogen needs of your crop through a compost, you might end up over applying phosphorus over time pretty easily. Um, so it's not a nitrogen specific thing, but it is nitrogen in relation to another nutrient. So yeah, definitely is a, is a struggle that I see, um, for a lot of growers, especially in the Fraser Valley. Okay, Drew. So moving on, you, you touched on it before we, we want to talk about regulations. I'm wondering if you can speak to, uh, regulation wise, like what, what are a farmer's responsibilities in BC in terms of managing nitrogen effectively and responsibly? Mm-hmm. So there is a regulation that started in 2019 and is in this process of being phased in to different regions and farm management types uh, over time. So we're well into that phase in. Um, and the, what I'm referring to is the Code of Practice for Agricultural Environmental Management. And I'm just going to call it the AEM code from now on for short. Um, but through the AEM code, um, there are a number of different 
standards um, for farms to be following. And this applies to any farm in BC that's greater than two hectares in size and that applies nutrients of any kind to it. So it's pretty all encompassing. So that's maybe another um, perhaps area of misconception where, oh, if I'm small enough, maybe some of these things don't apply to me. But yeah, it's, it's just two hectares, which is about five acres. So um, so there's this phasing of, of standards, as I mentioned, and uh, there's, a, there's a number of standards, but I guess maybe three that I want to highlight are um, there's uh, some requirements related to the way that nutrients are applied. Um, there's some requirements to uh, minimum setbacks from water sources, and that goes back to that environmental risk that we already talked about. Um, and then there's also some standards about the way that on-farm storage of composts or manures or other nutrient sources um, should be done. So, yeah, I think one of the things that's really challenging talking about the AEM code is that the specifics are specific <laughs> to, to different operations in different regions. And so... Yes, I'm trying to think of like, what are the things that I can highlight the most? And to me, I think knowing just generally that there are these standards that apply, I would encourage people to go and check out. There's some information that's laid out on the Ministry of Agriculture website, and we'll provide a link below in the description. But check that out and get a handle on. I'd, I'd start with the minimum setbacks, the on-farm storage, and then just the nutrient application standards. Um, okay, well, of those three, I'm yeah. most curious about the nutrient application standards. Do you yeah. have any examples, even if you're just speaking? I know it can depend on the region, but can you, mm -hmm. can you give an example of what that means? Uh, you know, yes. regulations around application? Yes, absolutely. So, Largely, those nutrient application standards are dependent on soil testing. So everyone is required to be um, soil testing and taking specifically a post-harvest nitrate test every three years, plus a soil test that um, will test for phosphorus, but just focusing on nitrogen. So if your post-harvest nitrate test is above 100 uh, kilograms per hectare um, is the value that you're getting consistently, then at a certain point, you're going to have to actually up the rate of sampling to every single year. And depending on where you're located, like if you're in a vulnerable aquifer recharge area, at a certain point, you will potentially be required to have uh, an official nutrient management plan written for you by a qualified person. Um, and through that nutrient management plan, you'll have to demonstrate that you are, to the best of your ability, working to to follow the recommendations in that plan and and meeting uh, a certain level. And this will vary depending on your inputs and depending on your soil tests, but a certain level of um, a soil balance at the end. So there's just some specifics around if you're ha if you are demonstrating that there's excess nitrogen left over on your fields at the end of a season, then there's sort of these requirements potentially leading to a nutrient management plan. Right. right. And this might be a good time to ask you then, Drew, like you're, mm -hmm. you're a crop consult consultant who works a lot on nutrient management. Yeah. I mean, so we've got this, we've got this challenge as farmers that we really want to make sure our crops get enough nitrogen as well as other nutrients, but we're talking about nitrogen mm -hmm. uh, and yet we don't want to add too much. 
but that ultimately this is not a, a, a really difficult thing. That that you, there are there are very clearly proven techniques and steps you can take to make sure that you're staying in that maintaining that balance between crop needs and an over application that, that can lead to this pollution we're talking about. Yeah, definitely. There are strategies that can be employed and, and like ultimately, I mean, so we're focusing on sort of these requirements that are environmentally connected, but for me, what I really like to come back to is that agronomic side of like thinking about what is it that your crops need and how can we not be wasting cost and yeah, inputs, um, in certain ways. And so, um, but do you know, what's yeah. interesting about that, Drew? I, I look that, yeah. that totally makes sense. I mean, yes. essentially, <laughs> essentially a farmer has an economic incentive not to be over applying. Abs- mm-hmm. Absolutely. And farmers who are some farmers, when, when this criticism comes up of, you know, perhaps needing to like crack down on how farmers apply, a, a very common response is, well, come on, we have the incentive not to over apply. However, mm-hmm. as a mm-hmm. farmer myself, I could, I would, I would, I would maybe counter that a little bit by saying, yes, but the, the marginal cost of adding a bit more fertilizer just to make sure <laughs> that the crops mm-hmm. have enough is not ultimately that much more. So to put it another way, there have been crops I've had that failed where my conclusion was my, my leading theory was not enough nitrogen. And then yeah. when I look at the money I lost on the failed crop, this is in retrospect versus, oh my God, yeah. if I had just spent, you know, so many more dollars per row foot or whatever, not even per row foot, you know, mm-hmm. so many more cents or tens of cents per <laughs> row foot, I would have mm-hmm. I would have had a thriving crop and not lost that money. My point being that, um, yes, there's the incentive not to overspend on your nitrogen, but there's also an incentive to make sure you have enough. And I, I don't know, I thought that was worth underscoring. No, absolutely. And and I mean, I think that is the the thing with making any alteration to the way that your nutrient management has been. If it's been a certain way for a long time, like it's it's a stepwise process, right? So making a small change and monitoring how that change went rather than going for a really big out of the blue change from from what your standard practices have been so because because you're right like it is really important you don't want to be ending up on the on the too little end of your inputs and and that's really important to to keep in mind absolutely and we're going to get into some strategies for that but is that enough said on that topic can we move on drew um i think there's just maybe a couple things i just want to say just to add on to the end of that. And one of them is just that it's okay to ask for help in trying to navigate some of this because it is new. And some of it uh, is is kind of complicated to find all of the pieces of information that you need. And so if there is like a consultant that you're able to work with, um, then that's a great option. But I do also wanna say that uh, different uh, specialists at the Ministry of Agriculture are actually able to provide industry support and guidance to navigating the AEM code. Um, the enforcement that would occur through this code is actually under the purview of the Ministry of Environment. So, um, and as with any <laughs> regulation or most regulations, it's a complaint-driven enforcement. So, just for people to keep that in mind, like if you were requested, you would need to be able to provide records and demonstrate your compliance but it is complaint driven like a lot of our agricultural regulations and 
I think that maybe people don't need to be as afraid of reaching out to the Ministry of Agriculture for fear of penalization in some way, because that's not actually their role in this particular regulation. So um, just as uh, someone who works with some of those Ministry of Agriculture folks to answer my questions as a consultant, just to say that that's also something that growers are allowed to do, and I'd encourage you to do so. The next topic I wanted to cover was just like how to track nitrogen cycles, and I th- I assume we're going to be focusing on the post-harvest nitrate test, which we which we just have a couple points to cover. But I just wanted to ask you if there are any other tools you would point to for for monitoring nitrogen cycles on your farm before we focus on that post-harvest nitrate test. Just right out of the gate, um, and maybe this is uh, something that a number of listeners are already doing, but just to encourage people to have systems in place that allow them to track their inputs really clearly, as well as to track their yield information really clearly. Because even if you're working with um, a consultant or someone else um, to kind of deal with your soil sampling results and interpret them, they're going to need that information um, regardless. And yeah, in order to interpret any testing that might be done, you're going to need to to know those pieces of information. And that might feel basic for some people, but I know that 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 is maybe like a starting place for a number of growers that I have worked with and spoken with in the past few years. So that's a place to start. If you don't have that, start there. And then there's also soil sampling in general, and we'll talk more specifically about the fall soil sampling, but I think I just want to mention, you know, you can take soil samples in the spring. There's also reason to take soil samples in the middle of the season. Okay, Drew, any, are there any other tools you want to mention? Yeah, the last tool that I want to mention right now is um, foliar sampling. So that would be in season taking tissue samples um, and getting analysis back on that. And there's two main reasons. One might just be diagnostic. So you're noticing that there's a problem in in your yield or the way that your plant health appears. And so taking a sample just to try to get a handle of what's going on in that moment. But the other approach would be more preventative. Um, So that would be taking regular foliar samples throughout the season. And mostly, um, people might choose that option if they're set up to add nutrients mid-season in some way so they can respond to that information as it comes available to them. So foliar sampling is another option if you're really trying to dial things in. Okay, I have questions about that. I'm as someone yeah. who has not I have not taken foliar samples before. Mm-hmm. I I want to know about cost effectiveness and I want to know how feasible it is to get in time results to affect that crop, if that makes sense. So, so yes, yes. So tissue sampling can be expensive, and that is maybe the biggest drawback. Um, so, like a tissue test can be in the realm of seventy bucks if you're getting it full micronutrients and the whole shebang because you're trying to see um, something in particular. Uh-huh. Um, so. Yeah, there are cheaper tests, and that might be if you are specifically only wanting to be looking at nitrogen, for example. Um, uh, I don't actually work with any growers that are doing that regular tissue sampling in a preventative way because it is expensive. And to be honest, most of the growers that I'm working with, their field operations aren't really set up for them to be fertigating or 
or adding that side dressing on a regular basis in some way, like other regions are. So mostly my experience is through that diagnostic option. And that's where usually, yeah, we'll go for the more expensive test in the 70 buck range or sometimes more because we don't really know what's going on. So we're taking a sample from the area that's showing the concern, whatever that is, and then taking a sample from an area that is looking healthier and providing a comparison and seeing if we can identify any nutrient within that that is is showing a deficiency or some issue. Medium case scenario, Drew, how quickly yeah. can it, like I, I, we won't get into how to take that foliar sample because people can go no. and research that, but I, I successfully take my sample, I send it away. How quickly can I have results? Medium case scenario. Medium case scenario within a week. Okay. So, so in a lot of cases for a long season crop within plenty of time to, to take a corrective action, if it's within your, within your, uh, ability to. Mm -hmm. Yes, I would say so. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for all that. Uh, post-harvest nitrate test though, which is in a lot of cases required for farmers to do. The title suggests that we're going to take this after the harvest, but is it more specific than that? Are you supposed to wait until a certain time in the late summer or fall, or is it just once your main crop is off, then you take your, your soil sample? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the title says post-harvest, but I'm here to tell you that it's okay to take a, a post-harvest nitrate test, not actually technically officially post-harvest. Um, and that kind of goes back to... The purpose of this test is to capture the amount of nitrogen that's left at the end of a crop's growing cycle. And so the way that nitrogen is taken up by most crops, there's low nitrogen uptake by the crop to start, like close to planting. Then there's quite a lot of nitrogen uptake in the middle part of growing season. So this vegetative phase, it's called. And then near the end of that plant's life um, as harvest is approaching, that nitrogen uptake by the crop tails off again. And so you just want to be close to harvest. Um, it doesn't have to be officially post-harvest. So that's it on the early side of things. Um, on the later side of things, you don't want to push too late um, into the fall. And so this may be why you end up taking that sample before harvest is officially completed. Because at a certain point, it's going to rain. <laughs> We're going to get the fall rains, especially for me. I work in the south coast, and it's a high precipitation area. And so um, the more that that rain falls, at a certain point, those really mobile nitrates are going to move through the soil profile and out of our sampling zone. Um, so we're not really actually going to capture it correctly. So, all right. So you send your, your, you, 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 you send away your soil sample for a post-harvest nitrate test. And I'm just wondering yep. if it, I would guess it's fairly straightforward to interpret that result. Am I right about that? So, um, it's not as straightforward as one might like. Um, uh, and that's where, uh, I'm going to direct people to another link, which is to a calculator that helps you to, convert your post-harvest nitrate value, which you'll get back from the lab in parts per million, PPM, um, and convert that into kilograms per hectare, which is the standard that um, the AEM code uses. So um, that is a really helpful tool to just convert it. Um, there's other little tricks of like 
if it's X, then multiply by two and et cetera. But um, I would just direct people to the to the um, the calculator itself. And then, you know, that you haven't made any mistakes. <laughs> um, but once you've done that, it's relatively straightforward. Um, and yeah, there are some some scenarios that we can talk about. But essentially, you really want to be using that 100 kilogram per hectare threshold um, as an indicator of even if the AEM code didn't exist, um, just as an indicator of having notably high nitrates left over at the end of the field season, and then trying to work back to problem solve why that was the case. And if there's any piece within that, that is within your control um, to adjust your management going forward. So Drew, as far as fertilizer selection goes, you know, I, I assume and maybe I can get you to elaborate. One major challenge is that a lot of synthetic fertilizers are designed to provide plant available nitrogen right away, mm-hmm. but that our plants, as you highlighted before, they don't need it very much in the early stages of growth. Then they need it a lot in the middle stages and then a little less <laughs> toward the end, but they need it throughout the whole season. So then when you're adding something, depending on what you're adding, I guess, you can be adding fertilizers that just aren't well suited to like efficient uptake. And therefore, Mm -hmm. I guess that leads to adding a lot, often adding too much in the early stage of the season to make sure the plants get it later. So what are some strategies to avoid that by either how you add fertilizer or which types of fertilizers you select? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And yeah, as you say, with maybe synthetic fertilizers or conventional fertilizers, those um, nutrient sources are expected to be available much more quickly. Um, and so in that scenario, a strategy that can be employed is having split applications of, of your nutrients. And one common misconception that I hear around the idea of split applications is if I were to broadcast a certain amount of fertilizer, and then two weeks later, when I come in to plant, I then apply the rest of my fertilizer with my planter. Um, at the time of planting, and that's a split application. Those are still both considered sort of pre-plant applications of fertilizer, and to me, doesn't really fit the bill of a split application. To me, a split application might be an application broadcast before planting, or an application at the time of planting, followed up with an application several weeks later that's trying to tap into that period of time where uh, nitrogen uptake takes off and escalates. And the exact timing of that uh, varies with different crops, but it's typically around four-ish weeks. Um, But yeah, you can look into that specific to different crops to, to dial that in a bit more specifically. So that would be with using some of these synthetic fertilizers where the availability is more immediate is a bit more straightforward, to be frank. Um, If we then look at that in the realm of organic fertilizers, things get a little bit less clear and we end up dealing with some estimates. So we can get into that a little bit now if you'd like. I kind of want to get into both. So we'll maybe deal with them one at a time. So I'm curious to know, I mean, from from your perspective as a crop consultant and, and nutrient manager, Yes. Are you a big 
fan or advocate for splitting your fertilization applications up through the season if you have the means and tools to do so? I mean, in short, yes. <laughs> I think for me, um, what uh, is a bit of a limitation to my uh, advocacy in that realm is just that um, a lot of farms aren't really set up for that, um, for that side dressing, for that split application. Um, and so that kind of ends that conversation uh, fairly quickly. Um, what are, so, what are, what are, yeah. what, what are, what are, when you say that, what are, what is preventing yeah. more farms from, from doing it? What, what do you mean specifically? Well, I think that, uh, there's machinery that's required again, thinking in like the mid to large scale operations, there's machinery that would be required to allow that to take place that folks don't have. And that's quite a big investment to move in a management direction that is very different than, um, what has been done in the past. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Cause I, I think we can probably both agree that one, one, you know, wham, bam application at the start of the season is certainly the simplest and easiest, mm -hmm. but, yes. but I'm just, I guess what I'm wondering about your comment is, is, is it all that difficult? If we're talking about a crop that is irrigated, is it all that difficult to introduce some sort of fertigation, whether you're doing drip irrigation or whether you're doing overhead? Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly with drip irrigation, it's a bit more, it would be a bit easier to introduce fertigation through that way. Through overhead, that's a bit more challenging because uh, then you're getting foliar contact. And yeah, it's just, it's, that's not really the, the way, the recommended way to, to fertigate. So it would be more for that drip irrigation setup, which I think is a lot more common in farm systems that I, I work in less, to be honest. So, right. yeah. And, and just not drip isn't just not practical for many types of crops on large scales. That's just not, mm -hmm. not used in, in, in many exactly. cases. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, and then as for organic fertilizers, so I want to, yeah, I'd like you to elaborate on the challenge of using an organic fertilizer that that is going mm -hmm. to have that nitrogen source in a more stable form that is going to be more slowly released over time which i assume has some pros and cons um mm -hmm. as well as whether <laughs> as whether ultimately though you would be you you are an advocate for the use of organic fertilizers like essentially does the does the slow release nature of organic fertilizers outweigh any any drawbacks to using them mm -hmm. um well, maybe let's start there with, yeah, like, uh, what are the benefits to using an organic fertilizer or an organic input? Um, a lot of the uh, farms that I work with have quite low soil organic matter to start with. And, and there's evidence of that um, having been depleted over time. And I think for me, my organic matter on its own just provides so many benefits and contributes so much to the soil in just many different ways. And so there's the soil chemistry of providing nutrients. There's the soil biology of providing and contributing to this environment for all of the microbes, which are so important to the way that our soils function. And then there's the soil physics side of things where soil organic matter contributes to structure and drainage and aeration. And, and uh, 
yeah, so to me, there's, I think, a really big case for incorporation of organic matter inputs into fields. I think that there is also this possibility of trying to tap into that uh, delayed release or mineralization of nutrients, as you sort of alluded to. What is tricky is how to most effectively tap into that mineralization. Um, our ability to estimate timing, it's just quite tricky. Um, in general, you need multiple weeks prior to cropping for most nutrients to mineralize or become plant available. Um, because, yeah, many crops don't have their biggest nitrogen uptake until several weeks after planting anyways. But early in the season, the colder and wetter the soil is, the slower that mineralization will be. And so, yeah, it's just it's just challenging to estimate exactly when that availability timing is going to take place. But I think that that is something that could be taken advantage of um, in lots of ways. And to me, how that works is that there's this on-farm trial and error to dial that in. Um, and you can work with a recommendation, but then it's gonna, it's gonna require some further finessing. And even, you know, year by year will require some finessing. Like for me in this last season, 2022, this spring was so cold and wet for so long. And that provided lots of challenges in lots of ways, but specifically I saw farms that the crops seem to be suffering in terms of uh, nutrients, even though, you know, the rate um, in theory was sufficient, mm -hmm. but in terms of the availability lining up with the crop needs did not work as well this particular season as it might've worked other seasons. And that's just a challenge um, that comes with, with the, uh, yeah, environment and farming and <laughs> yeah that one's that one's a tricky one okay so i i, I had i have at least well, i have one or two just follow-up questions Great. You know, we've been talking about organic fertilizers but neither of us have specified what you're talking about i mean are we yeah in your mind are you mainly thinking about compost or are you mainly thinking about just various organic sources of nitrogen such as feather meal or blood meal like what, what what's going on in your mind as you're saying all that because you made the reference to organic matter which made me think mm -hmm. that maybe you're talking more about compost application yeah I'm mostly I think you're right I'm mostly talking about compost or manures yes okay and and depending on where you are in the province can be fairly cost effective to access and generally any company selling it provides an analysis so you can get a sense mm -hmm. of in what proportions your 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 nitrogen are coming in the compost. The other question was it almost feel, felt to me as you described that like you were suggesting or or almost implying that that one strategy would be you know us if if you are not a certified organic farm and you can be using conventional fertilizers perhaps considering a smaller initial uh synthetic fertilizer application balanced out with a compost application applied at the same time where mm -hmm. that synthetic application would take care of the early season without over applying nit nitrogen and then that th that compost would take your crop through much of the rest of the season something like that yes yes or even even um 
a initial compost or manure broadcast application that's incorporated and then um, uh, the crop is planted after a couple of weeks and then um, following up with a side dressing of perhaps a granular organic input like a feather meal or Mm -hmm. some other sort of pelletized granular organic input um, that perhaps has a higher nitrogen value and a lower phosphorus value in an attempt to sort of balance out that nitrogen to phosphorus um, imbalance that we see a lot of the time with compost or manures. Right. Is there anything else you want to speak to about um, fertilizer selection before we move on? Um, I think maybe one thing that I would like to say about organic fertilizer selection is that even for some of those granular pelletized options, their availability is not going to be as immediate as you'd see for a pelletized granular synthetic fertilizer. So not to, there's still some accounting for that slower, almost like a controlled release effect um, on those organic inputs, even when they're in a granular form. Like in the sense that you prefer them for the, for that reason? Yeah, that, that, that can be actually a tool that you can use to your benefit, but just to not accidentally um, equivocate uh, those organic granulars with behaving in a similar way to uh, the synthetic granulars just because they're both granular. Okay. And I did want to ask though, like we keep almost creating this, this line between synthetics that are you know, immediately available and the organics that are more stable. That's just, and I'm not talking about compost, just the granular type fertilizers, right? But right. what about, uh, this is something I'm ignorant of as a certified organic farmer. What about time release synthetic fertilizers? Like where do those fit in your tool chest, if at all? Yes. So yeah, those are often referred to as, yeah, slow release, controlled release, time release. Those synthetic fertilizers can be employed to, yeah, basically try to delay the uptake um, to match when the crop will need that that nutrient to be most available. I, I mean, I would I would think of like a lot of the granular organic fertilizers to behave like a controlled release synthetic fertilizer. There's some similarities to be had between those in terms of how they they behave in response to soil conditions, making the nutrients more available over time. All right, Drew. Well, in another few minutes, I'm going to get you to take us briefly through how you would approach, you know, a year's management on a crop. But Mm -hmm. but just before we do a couple of questions, a few questions about management considerations. So how, how do we predict nitrogen availability in a given fertilizer, you know, in terms of its release, can that be done? You already referenced the fact that it's a bit of an an art and it takes time and you just have to constantly mm-hmm. monitor. But do you have anything else to say about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, okay. So I would say that estimating the timing of availability is the most tricky part. In terms of being able to estimate how much will be available this year versus next year, again, it's an estimation. So it's not like a precise value, but we do have a, some more tools that help to make that a bit clearer. So I'm going to again, point people towards some calculators that are available online. Um, There's a manure nutrient calculator, which can also be used for composts. Um, So there's book values in there that can be used. There's also um, a space for you to input perhaps test values that you've been provided by 
um, a compost company or test values that you've taken yourself. And then you can use that information in the nutrient management calculator, which provides some estimates based on your inputs about how much nitrogen will be available this year versus how much uh, nitrogen will be carried over into next year. And yeah, there's just some general estimates that you can use and work off of, which is, you know, not exactly precise and perfect, but it is better than just pretending that <laughs> those carryovers and proportions don't exist at all. Um, so that's where I would, uh, I would direct people to for how much will be available this year and then trying to get a grip on some of that carryover effect a little bit more. This kind of goes back to timing as another tool that can help you with trying to, to determine your timing a little bit. I kind of mentioned this earlier, uh, but you can use mid-season soil sampling as a tool. So this would be at a certain stage of growth for your crop, taking a soil sample specifically for nitrogen and seeing at that point in the season what your soil nitrogen is looking like and this is mostly helpful, again, if you're able, if you're set up to be able to side dress and actually respond to that value. But even if you're not, it also gives you an idea of how you did with your nitrogen inputs to that point. Like, mm, should I have put on more nitrogen earlier in the spring? Um, because this test is telling me that really I should be supplementing with some more nitrogen at this point. Um, there's some really great information on that mid-season soil sampling tool and how you might be able to use it through a publication from OSU, that's uh, Oregon State University. And maybe we can link that below, but if you just Google search OSUEM9221, you'll get this soil nitrate testing for the Willamette Valley vegetable production, and it has some really good guidance about how to use that tool if that's something of interest to you. Okay, and I totally get it. Even even if you can't do that side dressing, that mid season test is is going to be really helpful in the future to, to to get to become better. You know, to 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 modify what you did, what you might do on the next crop. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's maybe not something that you do a mid season soil sample everywhere, but you have a couple of indicator spots that you want to utilize, and it just gives you that little bit of extra information. Yeah. All right. So another one I wanted to ask you about, Drew, is uh, the loss of nitrogen through volatilization. Can, like, um, what, what do we have to be thinking about there? Yeah. So we mentioned this at the top about that's another avenue for loss um, um, into the atmosphere of nitrogen. And so I think there is a way that we can reduce some of that loss. And that is basically by ensuring that we incorporate our organic nitrogen inputs as quickly as possible. Basically, the more that or the longer that perhaps like a broadcast compost, for example, is left on the soil surface, the more that is at risk to being lost to volatilization. And that's bad environmentally, but it also is a source of nitrogen that we've tried to put on our field that is not going to stick around in our field. So if we're able to incorporate that um, instead of leaving it on the soil surface, ideally within three days of application, but ideally same day of application, really, that's going to help you retain more of the nitrogen that you've tried to put onto your field. And there's different estimates that can demonstrate this again through the calculators that I've listed above, particularly through the nutrient management calculator. 
when you're inputting information about how you're going to apply some of those inputs, there's options for incorporation after one day, after two days, et cetera. And you can actually see through the calculator the amount of nitrogen that you might lose to volatilization through that. So that's just something to, for us to keep in mind, I think, as well is, okay, we've made a perfect calculation, <laughs> not quite perfect, but we've made our best calculation possible of how much nitrogen we want to be putting on. And then we don't want to be accidentally losing some of that nitrogen to volatilization just because of the way that we were putting it on. I'm inferring from what you said that that farmers might be surprised how much nitrogen they can lose that way if they don't incorporate it. Quickly. Yes. Yes. I think I think that that's probably the point there. Yeah. Thanks. And and is a little bit of incorporation better than none of it at all? And what or or another way of asking that is like, how what's an ideal level of incorporation in terms of depth into the soil or however you want to interpret it? Hmm. I mean, yeah, just a, a little is better than nothing at all. Um. So even just being able to disc it in a little bit would be helpful. Right. Okay. I asked because in my system with salad greens. I broadcast organic granular fertilizer, and I know this probably applies more to synthetic, but it would still apply at least a little bit to organic sources. And for in my case, I'm just I'm just using a a little power harrow, which is gonna which is just gonna work in the top two inches, but it is gonna ultimately bury or or surround that that application in soil in those top two inches to the extent that you know I can't see it very easily once I've done this incorporation. So I'm assuming that even would have some benefits compared to just leaving it on top of the soil. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, no, that that would be quite sufficient. Okay, Drew, well, we're going to close things out more or less by having you, by doing a bit of a case study. I mean, you're a crop consultant who works with farmers on these matters. And so I thought I would ask you to kind of take us through a season. We're not going to go into depth, but it's just to give us an idea of how you, as a someone who thinks about this a lot, approaches a whole season's management of a crop in terms of nitrogen. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm going to ask you to try and be brief as you take us through the steps. Yes. But maybe you could just tell us the best place to start when you wrap your head around this and then take us from there. Yeah. So that process would start with me trying to gather information about existing management on that farm. Um, and part of that is trying to figure out what management units or how that's going to uh, translate into potential sampling units, either because the grower is planning to take samples themselves or for me to help them take those samples. So getting a handle on uh, the soil type, the crop type, and the management that's ongoing and how those might fit together into these different management units that need to be sampled. And then after sampling has been done and we have some results, then I can take that information that they've given me about their inputs and their management, as well as their yield information, to try to find the reasons behind the nutrient values that we've got. So specifically, if we're talking about post-harvest nitrate tests, then finding the reasons why the PHNT value was what it was in the fall. And that's because when we take a post-harvest nitrate test, we're sampling all of the nitrogen from all potential sources of nitrogen um, in that field, which can extend beyond just the nitrogen that we applied in the spring. There's contributions from crop residue. Maybe there's 
this carryover effect, like I've spoken about from previous years of organic inputs, that kind of thing. So uh, there's sort of like a, a piecing together of that information. And then, yeah, we'll work with within those existing management practices as much as possible to make some small and incremental changes. Because if I've learned anything as a consultant, it doesn't make sense to make a recommendation that someone is never going to realistically implement in the first place, right? So, and that just doesn't make sense also just from a, a risk and business risk management standpoint to suddenly come out of left field and do something really, really uh, different. Um, we don't want to be risking our, our yield at the end of the day. So, could you... Okay, thank you. And so from that point, you've made some fertilizer recommendations and then the season progresses. What else is happening as far as your role through the season? Yeah, so through the season, and this might be where if we've made an adjustment um, in management, we want to be tracking how that's going. So um, perhaps, as I mentioned before, we choose a couple of indicator fields where we increase frequency of sampling. So maybe we do a spring, a mid-season, and a fall in that one particular indicator spot or two particular indicator spots, depending, um, and get a little bit more information from that. So wanting to continue to monitor, especially in areas where we've made some changes, to see what that ends up resulting in. And, and if our, our um, guesses about what was going on was correct in the end. Okay. And then from there, is it just, I, I, I imagine you consultants wait with bated breath for the end of the season to see how the crop <laughs> works out and then to take your final samples to, um, you know, to, to close things out with, with, you know, I guess a post-harvest test. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so Drew, are there any, uh, we're, we're just about done here. I'm just wondering if there are any, mm -hmm. any new fertilizers or fertilizer technology of the last few years that, that, you know, you've been very excited about? Um, I mean, I have been really excited about this idea of using some of the higher nitrogen inputs in combination with compost and manure. So for example, like a feather meal or maybe another organic granular. Um, and there's yeah, some that have been coming onto the scene, and I, I don't want to specifically mention names uh, to be seen as promoting any particular one, but um, just that combination, uh, I think there's a lot that could be done in that realm, and that's work that I know UBC has been doing quite a bit of research on that, and I just feel like there's really good data Um in that realm coming together of, of what we can play with. And I'm the most excited about that. Um, I think maybe the next thing, which we also talked about is, is having machinery that actually allows for a true split application like side dressing. And I am not a machinery expert. Um, I don't, I don't necessarily have my finger on the pulse of, of the best machinery that, that can allow for that. But, that is an area that I'm also really excited about and, and see a lot of potential in. Um, I also, it's funny, I've just been talking with some colleagues lately about uh, how a number of us are really into this back to basics kick right now. So another, I guess, 
piece of fertility technology that I'm excited about is cover cropping. And that's not new, but I just, as a tool to sort of capture some of that nitrogen that's left over at the end of the season on fields or particular crops that kind of have a history of repeatedly being in that high post-harvest nitrate test category, there's just, I think, still a lot more work uh, that can be done in that area. And so much of it is really like farm specific and goes back to that idea of doing your own trial and error and seeing what works for you um, based on your soils. And if you've got waterfowl grazing pressure, you know, all of those things, there's not a one size fit all. And um, yeah, I just, there's so much potential in that, in that cover cropping tool, I think as well. What are some crops that fit that categorization of typically high post-harvest nitrate tests? Yeah, so in my experience, crops like corn and potatoes often fall in that category. And largely it's connected to those are high feeding crops. And so they tend to receive higher fertilizer rates, higher nitrogen application rates. And yeah, in an attempt to meet those needs of those crops, um, we're putting a lot onto the fields and it's maybe being applied in a one-off application pre-plant where maybe that nitrogen moves outside of the rooting zone by the time the crop is really taking it up. So it's not maybe the most efficient or effective way of um, nitrogen application. And uh, so anyways, those crops are getting a lot put on and then there's just a lot that's being left over at the end of the seasons. What's really challenging, at least for corn and potatoes in the Fraser Valley, is they tend to be some of the crops that are harvested later or last. And so that's the challenging logistics of trying to get a cover crop onto the fields that you're also pushing harvest the latest on. So Drew, before we say goodbye, is there anything else that you want to mention? Yeah, so we've talked quite a bit through this conversation about um, soil sampling and testing and and interpretation. And um, I just want to highlight that implementation of different beneficial management practices for nitrogen management can actually be eligible for cost sharing through a program that's going on right now called the BC Climate Agri-Solutions Fund. And this is a program that started just this last year in 2022, and it's carrying into 2023 um, for sure. I'm not sure about the future of it beyond that, but even soil sampling under that program is considered a nitrogen management BMP. And so those expenses plus consultation fees could be applied for a cost sharing. It's a 70% cost share through that program. So I just want to highlight that Um, as an opportunity for people who are wanting to maybe intensify or add to their soil sampling uh, program specifically, that could be considered eligible under this program. So maybe we'll throw a link, (laughs) so many links below, but it's the BC Climate Agri-Solutions Fund. And yeah, I mean, through this project, I was funded earlier this year to run a number of different outreach and knowledge transfer events like field days and video demos and stuff like that. So if you're interested of, in any of that, um, feel free to get in touch. Or if you go to the website for that fund, 
um, there'll be information uh, linked to that website as well. We will definitely provide all links mentioned in this episode in the show in the show notes. So so in someone's podcast app where they access this podcast, they'll be able to find it anywhere you can find this podcast. And I guess there is one more thing I'd like to mention, Jordan, when I'm uh, having giving these talks or having these conversations uh, sort of in a to a broad audience about nitrogen management or nutrient management, it's challenging to know uh, how specific to get or, you know, everybody's needs are, are, are truly different. And so I think I sometimes leave some of those conversations feeling like, oh, is that really accessing the level of information that that particular person needed? And so I guess like for those of you who've listened to this podcast and you've caught to the end of this conversation and you're feeling like, well, that was pretty uh, general or pretty basic and uh, didn't really touch at my particular questions or needs. To me, maybe that is an indication that, yeah, you're ready for digging into your particular specific needs and questions. And that's where, to me, getting support from consultation of some kind, whether that be private or through um, maybe some of the Ministry of Agriculture specialists could be what you need at this point and, and where you're at. And so um, especially that consultation fee side of things, that could be eligible for cost sharing through this uh, fund that I've just mentioned. And so um, maybe there's support that can push you to accessing that consultation that you're ready for at this point if you're not already. Yeah. And I mean, as I've been talking to you, Drew, it just really kind of struck me that like, I would imagine that that for a certain kind of farmer or scale of farmer, the idea of hiring a consultant is scary in terms of the the, the perception of what it might cost. But mm-hmm. listening to all this and, and imagining what it could do for my farm, if, if I had a professional really delve into my fertilization practices, I would imagine that in a lot of cases, a, a, a penny spent on crop consultation can, can easily be worth a dollar saved, in, you know, when it comes to harvest the crops. Yeah, certainly. And especially if you're able to have like a pretty uh, honest conversation with whoever it is that you're working with about this is, these are my needs and, and really focusing in on what would be useful to you specifically. Um, I think that that's where the real value comes in. Drew Yates Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast to educate us about all this. It's a pretty important topic. And uh, yeah, I, 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 I trust that, that that there's lots of little nuggets in here that'll help farmers be more successful with their nitrogen applications and, and more responsible in their use. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jordan. I'll talk to you later. All right. That's it for this episode, everyone. I quickly want to mention that this episode of the Organic BC podcast was supported by the BC Climate Agri-Solutions Fund. I also want to thank Drew for joining us to talk about nutrient pollution. And I want to thank, as always, Matt Eckel for providing all the great music that we hear in this podcast. Now, for the next episode of this podcast, you're going to be back to hearing from guest host Tristan Banwell. He recorded a really interesting conversation about fencing considerations for those who want to consider or improve a rotational grazing system for their livestock. 
Okay, I think it's time to say goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>